the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside. Hello and welcome to the Science Inside. We are still charting the field of science and technology in South Africa and we are doing that by interviewing great women and men who are doing exceptional work in their various fields of science, tech and innovation. And tonight is no exception. We have on the Science Inside a molecular biologist, Tulile Kanyile on the line, and she is a very dynamic woman. She is a lecturer, a social entrepreneur, and a PhD candidate in the HIV Pathogenesis Research Unit in the School of of Pathology here at the University of the Witwatersrand. And during her master's, she worked in the field of biophotonics, where she was examining the use of lasers for precision delivery of antiretroviral drugs in cell culture. And now for her PhD studies, she is searching for an HIV vaccine that can mimic the broadly neutralizing antibody response of the donor CAP256, which is the super responder in small animal models. Now I know we've been talking to a lot of these um, researchers in the field of science but uh, this is really um, you know interesting to to find out the various kind of works that they are doing uh, within uh, you know by looking for vaccines and doing research into uh, this epidemic. Tulile is a multidimensional woman as well. She likes helping other people, particularly young people, and she's been able to do this through her non-profit organization called Nka Tuto Edu Propeller, which is self-explanatory really. It means take or choose education. The NPO was established to advocate for science, education and promotion, innovation and entrepreneurship within uh, previously disadvantaged communities. We will get into conversation with Tulile a bit later on in the show, but on Unscience tonight, we are looking to how our memories are stored, how they are made, and why the least important memory will pop up in the most unlikely situation at times when you are not really looking for those kind of memories. Then, of course, we wrap up our chat with Tulile where we talk about her personal life and what are the other interesting things that she gets up to when she's not wearing a white coat and when she is not in a lab. But for now, we get into the news with Mulebu Mukoka. Welcome to the Science Inside once more, Mulebu. Thank you for having me. Second time in a row. <laughs> yeah, that's really lovely. Uh, so can you tell us what is on the news for tonight? Okay. In your news making headlines this week, the future of energy in South Africa may depend on a mix of energy sources in combating climate change and a secretary bird in Stellenbosch has now become more than a new leg to stand on. This week's Science Headline. Good evening, I'm Mulebuhe Mugoga. Now, the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research's head of Energy Center, Dr. Clinton Carter-Brown, recently delivered an energy transition presentation to the Parliamentary Portfolio Committee on Energy and Mineral Resources, where he spoke about how South Africa can introduce a more sustainable energy transition through, or rather though coal, will remain part of the energy mix well into 2050. <coughs> now, the strategy is just one of the efforts to curb carbon emissions and to stop the depletion of limited natural resources. Carter Brown elaborates. The challenging one in that I think the two 
understanding of challenges have, have really only started to materialize in the last 10 years. And, you know, as a developing economy, price or the cost of energy is, is, is a major consideration. So when there's been a discourse around, you know, we want to um, reduce uh, emissions that's going to come at a cost without a clear understanding of how that is going to be financed and, you know, is a real challenge. Uh, what is now a, a real game changer is that as we need to decommission some of the old coal stations, the lowest cost replacement alternatives are inherently cleaner renewable energy sources. So, you know, what we're seeing now is, 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 a, is a major opportunity to create new, new industries and to decarbonize portions of the energy system. And what is getting a lot of traction now is that in doing that, we can actually reduce the, the cost increase trajectory. So being cleaner is no longer in conflict with being cheaper. And, you know, until as recently as five years ago, that wasn't the case. There's a lot of discourse now in terms of decarbonisation, especially given that we've got opportunities to do so without necessarily increasing our cost. Now, South Africa's domestic electricity supply is subject to the supply of coal and faces multiple challenges ranging from a growing infrastructure backlog, aging and poorly performing coal-fired power stations and a dependence on important liquid fuels. A case in point being when Cyclone Idai struck the shores of Mozambique, South Africa was left largely or rather South Africa was left largely due to ESCOM being forced to implement load shedding in order to preserve the little fuel available. Carter Brown emphasized the need for this transition as it not only leads to power shortages, but also to reduce investor confidence, inflation in the rand dollar exchange, an increasingly constrained national electricity system, and an escalation in electricity prices, which affects the competitiveness of South African industry. It's highly feasible and we've already got a very successful program. South Africa has already procured a lot of renewable energy and it's already integrated into the system and a lot more can be done. So there there are challenges around what we call the just energy transition. What essentially means is that some areas of the country in Mpumalanga where a lot of the coal mines and coal-fired power stations are located that there's going to be a, a localized impact in those communities. So as one uh, starts to decommission those power stations and those mines, one needs to then find alternatives in terms of for those economies and, and, and to an extent those the miners and power station workers. And, and that's where you know a lot of the thinking now needs to be around this just transition in terms of what are the options to develop the necessary plans, the social plans to ensure that the new renewable energy or whatever it is that gets built. It's not just renewable energy, it's gas and other sources that will be able to create those those technologies and create new jobs and new opportunities. But it needs to be well managed because of the you know, the profound impacts that this will have in certain locations and on labor. So, you know, one needs to have a, a plan and, and this concept of a just transition is gaining a lot of momentum. 
Now, the transition into a possible future with a power mix is characterized by a variety of energy sources such as solar, wind, hydro, natural gas, and biomass, the mass of living biological organisms in an ecosystem which may include microorganisms, plants, or animals as fuels. In order to realize the National Development Plan Vision 2030, coal will continue to play a major role for at least the next 30 years or so depending the decline of its use being paramount importance. It will be many years before the entire electricity system is going to be coal-free. I mean, we, we're only now completing the Madhuti and Kazuzi power plants, and, and those are expected to be a, you know, an economic life of, of anything up to 50 years, possibly longer. So there will be some coal in the South African power system for quite some time, unless there is a call an accelerated decarbonisation plan, which means that even though it's going to cost us more, we, we are prepared to, to early decommission coal fleet. And today, there's no such plan on the table nationally. The, the present, or what we call sort of least cost uh, trajectories are where there's existing coal stations and they're operating acceptably to keep them in the system. And as such, from our analysis in the Department of Energy's own plans, we really only start to see coal in the energy electricity system start to decline quite substantially from about 2030. And even in 2050, there will, there will still be a small amount of coal. So it, it's going to be a, a gradual decline we, that we expect to see. And uh, anything more aggressive than that will come at, a, at a, some kind of cost, cost you know, um, which may still be attractive to the country in terms of the new jobs and the other opportunities that it will create. Carter Brown explains that South African low-cost renewable sources could also provide opportunities to export green hydrogen and carbon-neutral synthetic liquid fuels to markets overseas and generate new forms of income, jobs and industries. Electricity in South Africa has uh, traditionally or historically been relatively cheap because of the, the low-cost coal-fired power stations, and um, those costs are, are increasing. So even with the most economic portfolio projects implemented, the bulk cost of electricity expects to continue to increase for the next 10 years, not at the sorts of levels that uh, consumers are presently experiencing because a lot of the present cost increases is really through the, uh, the increase of the cost overruns and time overruns on the ESCOM, Madupi, and Kosili power plant, the main driver behind the cost increases. But in the long run, we really see an opportunity where South Africa is strategically positioned to have some of the lowest cost electricity in the world once again, as it had in the sort of 1980s and 90s and 2000s. So because we have such good solar um, and wind resources in the country, we, we really do have the opportunity to, in the long run, reduce electricity prices. But um, in, in the medium term, there will still be some pain in terms of price increases before we start to stabilize and then ultimately decrease the cost of electricity. Now, moving on to our final story, a secretary bird called Legs has become the first animal in South Africa to be fitted with a 3D printed prosthesis. The leg, which is more of a stump rather, was created by a team of prosthetics and orthotists from a company called Bunny Corp, which 
or rather who focuses in addition manufacturing growth in the medical sector specializing in human and animal prosthetics products and services now in 2017 a captured bird at a zoo in germany was one of the very first in the world to be fitted with one but for south africa it was for the first time that a national bird was fitted with a 3d printed prosthetic leg which saw this bed testing its new fitment a week after its new leg one of the 3d printing experts at Dan- at bunny brother philip van der Velt. i've been working in this technology for many many years a lot of the industries are slowly adapting towards it seeing the potential that it can it can do and especially with animals a big problem is there isn't really products available on the market so the, the few things that are out there is not really suitable for use in this case for people would end up using a piece of pipe or whatever just to kind of simulate something but it's not a proper solution and the 3d printing allows us to really do custom geometries custom shapes that that just functions better than anything else material is very important because we're looking at weight to strength ratio which means we don't want something that's going to be too heavy but it needs to be strong and especially in this case where this is a wild animal and they use their feet to kick their prey. So it's quite a hard knock that they hit with. So we had to make sure that we have got something very strong. So the material that we used was a, a carbon fiber printing material. Uh, we are currently experimenting with various types of materials, uh, strong materials to see what works best versus the weight and so on. So we might be doing another leg or two different materials just to see if it would work better or not, or how long it would last, that type of thing. But uh, your material does play a big role. Now, this was the same team involved in the recent development of the world's first 3D printed middle ear bones in the world. First transplanting of 3D printed middle ear bones by Professor Mashadu Chifalaru of the University of Pretoria. The bird, which has been a resident of Encounters Wildlife uh, Rehabilitation and Conservation Center near Stellenbosch for four years now, was brought to the rehabilitation center after badly injuring and sustaining an infection after its foot was trapped in a snare resulting to its amputation. Nevertheless, this was not the end for legs. Last year, aviation veterinarian of the Center for Aviation, Reptile and Exotics, Dr. Kuzi van der Beer, opted to give legs another shot at life and summoning the 3D printing design rather team to Bunnikov to interview and the rest is history. We actually 3D scanned the existing leg or the stump so we had to make something that fits really really perfectly and also that's going to be very strong and light and 3D printing was just it's just very convenient to do it like that because we can do things that we cannot do with any other types of manufacturing. Now, Legs has quickly adjusted to her new artificial limbs. The stump has been fitted with draining holes to ensure comfortability and health. She's already strutting around, showing off her new leg and putting it to good use. We get regular updates. The owner, they check on him on a regular basis and as well as the the vet, Dr. Uh, Bear. They constantly let us know if there's anything uh, changing or anything. But so far, it looks very good and all the results look very promising. We would like to end up with a leg that he can wear, not indefinitely, but something that he can wear for a long period of time without them having to check it the whole time. No? But it's, it's, it's tricky because the design we did, we tried something, we added a draining holes and air holes as well to make sure that there's no water that gets 
stuck you know, inside of the leg because if there's water and moisture, then eventually that could develop into something. But with this, the leg should be dry the whole time, which means there shouldn't be any issues like that. But they're, they're constantly checking to make sure that everything is positive. Now let's recap your stories for this week. Now the future of energy in South Africa may depend on a mix of energy sources in combating climate change and a secretary bed in Stellenbosch now has more than a new leg to stand on. This week's news stories were sourced from the CSIR and the science, the ScienceDaily.com and the CSIR website. This week's Science Headline. Welcome back. You're still on the Science Inside. And on the line tonight, you ha- we have molecular biologist Tulile Kanile of the University of the Witwatersrand. And she's a lecturer here at WITS and a PhD candidate in the uh, study of HIV pathogenesis research unit in the School of Pathology. And during her master's, she worked in the field of biophotonics, examining the use of lasers for precision delivery of antiretroviral drugs in cell culture. Now, in her PhD study, she's uh, in search of a vaccine that can mimic the broadly neutralizing antibody response of the donor CAP256, a super responder in small animal models. And uh, she is on the line. She's going to be explaining that further in this interview. Good evening and a very warm welcome to the Science Inside, Chulile. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I understand that science was not really your first career choice, but then your parents somehow managed to convince you into taking up the sciences and they basically just turned your thoughts and your plans around. Take us through that journey and that decision making. I think, you know, when um, growing up and you're at school, you, you know, it's that time where you could be good at more than one thing, right? So I had... Um, quite a, and I still do have have quite an interest to in the arts. So, uh, drawing, singing, poetry, writing, creative writing, all of that. I I, I really have a very strong side and a strong interest in that. But I also just like um, the human body um, from a medical perspective as well. Mm. From from a medical perspective, so what I wanted to do was become a medical doctor as a result of being deterred from the creative spaces. Yeah. Because my parents were like, the reality of the matter for them is that, well, um, they just want to know that I can do something that's going to give me an income, that's going to make me steady. And for them, going into the arts or pursuing the arts didn't seem lucrative for them at the time. You know, so the... um, sort of wanted to redirect me into a different space and because I was getting sort of the marks I thought actually you know what let me do medicine <clears throat> which ended up not happening thank goodness um but you know that's how that's how it sort of all happened you know yes and um, I also spoke to your previous professor, um, Professor Shirley Mutaung, and, you know, she mm. spoke about, um, 
you being her protege and you know being <laughs> <laughs> like her understudy but she really uh, spoke really well about you about um how hard working you were and how inspiring you really are but how would you say your experience and your studies from TUT have brought you to where you are in your career and has evolved over the years? I think for me, um, being at TUT was, was, was interesting because, um, I mean, being at a university of technology, you sort of get the perception that there's going to be a lot of theory. I mean, there's going to be a lot of practice all the time, practical work, practical work all the time. Yeah. But I actually didn't find that that was the case. But yes, I was just very, very you know, when I was doing my undergrad uh, in biotechnology at TUT, as well as my Bachelor of Technology as well, very theoretical. Um, what was different is, is that I could have that year of in-service training where I would then be in industry. And I was very strategic about that. I did quite a lot of research to find out what I liked doing, and I had decided that I liked research. While still an undergrad, I knew I liked research. I just didn't know what field of research I wanted to, to, to go into. Yes. But then I heard of the CSIR, and for my in-service training while at TUT, which you need to graduate, I sort of targeted the CSIR. And for me, um, if I hadn't been at TUT, if I hadn't been at a, a University of Technology, I would have not had that exposure. Yeah. So how TUT then um, lends itself to me finding where I am now, is that I was groomed, I would say I was groomed at the CSIR as a researcher. So being at the CSIR as an intensive trainee, I sort of um, tried to work very hard and try to be very handy um, with the researchers that I was working with at the time who were far more experienced than I was. And they saw value in, in grooming me to a point where I did my master's still at the, at the CSIR and then exposed to the university to a point where I'm not working at the university. So really... Um, I think it's because I, I, that's how, that's how TUT becomes relevant in my life. It's that, it's that one year that you have to spend in industry. And for me, that's how I ended up where I am today. Yes. And how was, um, well, how difficult was it actually landing a job at the CSIR? Um, so, you know, you know what I've learned, landing a job at the CSIR is hard. Yeah. Um, it's a difficult thing to do. However, I think over the years, what I've learned is that there's, there's a way that you connect with people and there's a way that you're able to tell people who you are and what you do, uh, mostly who you are, by showing them who you are. Mm. That makes them have an interest in you, which makes things that would otherwise be difficult slightly more accessible to you. Yes. But yeah, then- I don't know if that makes any sense. I, I hear you, but then you you still you say it was quite difficult, uh, you know, penetrating that uh, workplace. But then you left, and then uh, here you are. You are adverts. Uh, why was there that that shift uh, from you know working at this research institution, and then now you you are here adverts. You are lecturing on the other side. You are doing research, and at the same time you are you know studying. Um. So. I just, I had, when when the opportunity to go to um, Stern University came, I had been at the CSIR already for about four years. And I think as a person that was, that went to the CSIR in my early 20s, going to my mid-20s, I felt like 
um, I, I, I had I, I had explored the CSIR enough for my age, mm. and it want and I was in a position where I could um, move somewhere else to continue doing research. Because remember, uh, a, a, a big bulk of, 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 of my job description at the university, a big bulk of it is actually still doing research. So um, following on getting my PhD, I still have to do research, which is what I will be doing at the CSIR in any case. It's just that now there's the additional role of lecturing um, and the additional role of having to serve the community as an academic. Um, so for me, I think it was the the, the, the right progression, um, which I never really planned for. I, didn't, I, I, I can't remember there being a time where I said, you know, one day I'm going to go be a lecturer. Mm. No, 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 that didn't happen for me at all. It was just that the opportunity came and it came at the right time. And I think I was prepared for it and I was ready for it and I was willing to, to take the jump. Well, and it's quite interesting because then you did not buy yourself off from, you know, exploring because somebody else would have thought, oh, now going back to deal with students and doing this and that uh, would have been a challenge. But mm-hmm. um, your PhD study, uh, it's looking into finding a vaccine that resembles HIV, but one that is uh, unable to infect the individual, but um, ultimately we they have the ability to neutralize various um different strains of HIV. This is very, very interesting research. Tell us mm. more about this. So, 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 so the essence, I think how I like to explain, explain this. Mm-hmm. I say that if you get um, the flu, without taking medication, your body, your immune system, sort of knows how to root itself off the flu. Mm. In the event of HIV, our bodies are not equipped to do that. Our bodies don't know how to completely fight or neutralize the virus. Yes. Which means we have to teach the immune system how to do this. So we have to expose the immune system to something that looks like HIV so that the immune system sort of launches a response against this thing and it remembers for next time what it looked like so that when it's exposed to the real HIV, it knows how to respond. Mm. Challenge with HIV is your immune system launches a response and HIV mutates or changes. If you think about how, um, if you think of HIV as a shape or as a puzzle piece, and you think of the immune system developing these soldiers, which we call antibodies, and these antibodies fit into the virus, and that's how it neutralizes, right, as a puzzle piece. But if this HIV is constantly changing, it means that the immune system needs to change the puzzle piece that's going to fit into the new shape of the HIV. Yeah. And HIV changes shape so often that the body ends up not being able to fight it at all until the HIV wins and progresses to AIDS, and that leads, obviously, to death. Yeah. Now, what we have to do is develop a vaccine that is able to keep up with the changing or the evolution of HIV in an infected person, right? And a couple of years ago, a couple of people, a cohort of people, it was discovered that approximately 20% of the people infected with HIV are able to, in fact, keep up 
with the changes that the HIV virus makes in the, in the body. And what we're trying to do now is to mimic that response. Wow. So this donor, CAP256, um, we harvested um, the antibodies and the virus, the sequence of the virus that makes up the shape that changes, was harvested at different time points. So that now we're able to use the sequences of the virus that were harvested from CAP256 as the baseline for a vaccine regimen. Wow. That is... So what we're trying to do now is to see if that works by testing them in animal models. Hmm. So, so this is almost like how the flu vaccine would work, but on a more uh, elevated level, if I may put it? Sure. So, so I mean, the research is showing that. It's, it's like, uh, I think it's HPV, um, um, the human papillomavirus. Yes where you get multiple shots. It's also a vaccine, but I think you get three shots. You have to present a hospital three times to get vaccinated. So in, for HIV as well, it would have to be a similar case, whereas you can take a vaccine for the flu, but it's just one shot. So with HIV, you may have to take multiple shots. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. So you may have to talk, take multiple shots which are different variants of uh, variants of shots that look like the virus but are not the virus. Yes, because obviously the immune system wants to remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow, that is uh, really um, interesting. I've and I've never heard of somebody actually explaining the process of 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 how you know um HIV mutates and evolves over time in the way that you have explained it but um just to wrap up this part of the of 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 the show or of the interview uh, who are the people who have inspired you and who are the people you you know who are inspiring you within your field Sure. In my field, um, so the, the very first person I was exposed to was uh, Professor Marco Betacati, and, and that and that chap inspired me a lot. He was the one that was my my boss when I was at the CSIR, and uh, my current boss, Maria Papadana Salbalos, um, is a great inspiration as well. Uh, people like Helen Rees, um, Glenda Gray, um, Yolin Marses that I've been working. Um, on HIV um, for a long time, those people inspire me um, quite a lot from both an academic perspective and both as just scientists and, and just the the appetite for for uh, for feeding inquiry yeah. for something that's really relevant and affects a lot of people, particularly where we find ourselves, you know, in the global community. Mm. And you, you are definitely that acquiring mind because uh, from the various people that I've spoken to, you're somebody who doesn't stop at, at one point and you say this is enough. You just go on and on and on seeking knowledge, seeking to better yourself. Uh, but we will talk to you a bit later uh in the show right now we are going into unsigned so please do not drop the phone uh, and speaking okay. of memories uh 
Tudile Kanyile was speaking about how they are trying to mimic the HIV, uh, I can say, RNA or the, um, 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 yes, the, the RNA within HIV so that it remembers, so that your body can sort of help uh, treat itself but now in unscience we are looking into something very similar and this week's unscience was produced by myself unusual unlikely unscience Now, this is that part of our show where we get a little bit silly with the research that we discover on mm-hmm. various websites yeah. that pertain to uh, science and tech. So, imagine you walk into a room full of people. A few moments later, your wa- your friend walks straight up to you and introduces two friends of theirs to you. And now, later on, it's dinner time and now you are sitting across the very same people at the dinner table but you need at least just one of them to pass uh, the salt to you but for some reason you can't remember their names and no matter how hard you try to remember their names all that you can recall is the names of your high school buddies or classmates (laughs) for some odd reason does that ring a bell it happens to me a lot remembering people's names you have to at least introduce yourself three times (gasps) To me, before I actually remember what your name is, but I've also won- always wondered, rather, why I've always uh, remember the irrelevant things and sometimes not the information needed for my exam at times. But how are they able to find this out, uh, this interesting data? Hmm. You're a special case. I need to say that firstly. Right. But a research uh, professor of biology at the Institute for Neuroscience at the California Institute of Technology called Caltech, Carlos Lois, was um, used actually a mouse model to determine the strong, stable memories that are encoded by teams of neurons, all firing in synchrony, providing redundancy that enables these memories to persist over time. That's interesting. So do you suppose we can look further into research, into implications of understanding how memory might be affected after brain damage in the case of a stroke, Alzheimer's disease or dementia? Well, the team developed a test to examine the mice's neural activity as they learn about and remember a new place. And in the test, a a mouse actually was placed in a narrow enclosure about one and a half meters within white walls and unique symbols were marked at different locations along the walls for instance a bold plus sign near the rightmost end and and an angled slash near the center then a reward of sugar water was placed at either end of the track for the mice so the researchers actually measured the activity of specific neurons in the mouse's hippocampus the region of the brain uh, when new memories are formed known for encoding places as the mouse explores okay cool but how does this inform them about what old memories the mouse had before being exposed to the new ones when the mouse was initially placed in the track it was unsure of what to do 
you can imagine i mean yeah. right you're just placed in the middle of nowhere right exactly. and you're expected to figure your way out so it wandered about going left and right until coming across the reward then when this happened uh, single neurons were activated when the mouse took notice of a symbol on the wall but over multiple experiences within the track the mouse became very familiar with those marking uh, or, or those marks and remembered the locations of the sugar as the mouse became more and more familiar more and more neurons were activated by seeing each symbol on the wall yep so they came back to the mouse the memories so in essence the mouse recognized its location with respect to its each unique symbol on the wall but i have not heard the part explaining what happens when we trade new memories with old one what's up with that to study how memories fade over time, postdoctoral scholar Walter Con- Gonzalez then withdrew the mice from the track for 20 days and upon their return after his long break, mice that had formed strong memories encoded by higher numbers of neurons remember the, the task quite easily. Even though some neurons showed different activity the mouse's memory on the track was clearly identifiable when analyzing the activity of large groups of neurons so you mean that using groups of neurons enables the the brain rather to be idle and still recall memories even if some of the original neurons fall silent or are damaged right very right let's just say you have a long distance marathon to run right Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but along the route, you would have to take detours because of roadworks and obstacles along the way. Now, in order to beat your last score, you would need to be privy to information of what kind of obstacles lay ahead and you'd need to find better ways, right? Right. So you'd need something like a navigation map or an updated GPS. Uh, GPS. Right. Of course. Now, in addition to that, next time you run the, along that route, instead of taking a GPS, you place markers along the route to help you access those routes far easily without you flinching or being confused by the tech. This way, the markers help preserve and strengthen your memory, just like the GPS and the markers. And then these neurons actually help each other out to encode memories that will persist over time. But it is unfortunate that it does not normally happen the way it does, does it? If, because if it did, then why do we forget important things? Like, for instance, you think of making another cup of coffee. You stand up, make your way to the kitchen. When you get there, you find a spill on the floor which distracts you. Yeah. And then you end up spending five minutes or so standing in the middle of the kitchen trying to figure out the reason for going into the kitchen in the first place. I must really say, <laughs> your memory pro- problems... <laughs> are many but i know of many people that this has happened to before however remember remember with age uh, diseases such as alzheimer's can affect one's memory uh, capacity because a memory is encoded by fewer neurons and if any of these neurons fail the memory is then lost so this study suggests that one day designing treatments could boost the recruitment of higher numbers of neurons to encode a memory which could help prevent memory loss. 
So then there is light at the end of the tunnel for those experiencing memory loss, like myself. <laughs> yeah. Conve- conventional theories about memory storage assume that making a memory more stable requires the strengthening of the connections to an individual neuron. And results from this study suggested increasing the number of neurons that encode the same memory enables memory to persist for far much longer. How do you think about that? I think it's pretty good research and technology. If they could try it on humans, then probably we're in for a good run. Yeah, but they need to really run a couple of, uh, a few tests. Can really. I be the first person they tried out? <laughs> They're guinea pig. memory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that was unusual, unlikely, unscience. And this week's science was sourced from sciencedaily.com. And the music is by Mos Def. This is the Science Inside. Welcome back. You're still with the Science Inside, and we are in conversation with Tulile Kanile. And in her research, she is working on a vaccine that will mimic cells of the HIV virus, which cannot infect the person but definitely eliminate the creation or the duplication of more cells and ultimately uh, treat the body and so that the body can actually respond to uh, or against the virus uh, cells and this is really impressive work and if I may add this will also lessen the burden on the public health sector where we know that you know South Africa is really burdened with the the virus epidemic. Now we get a little bit more comfortable and up close uh, and personal with Tulile. Welcome back, Tulile. Yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> now, Tulile, we also spoke to your mom, uh, Umam Ndomfuti Kanile, and this is what she had to say um, about you. We wanted her to have a, a stable job, you know. We are from the school of thought, you see, where we think if Umtuana ends a uh, academic or it's uh, medicine or, or education or something like that, then she will get a job and have a stable life, you see. So that's why we wanted her to be a medical doctor, you know. Yeah, what we do with all our, our, our kids, we support them in whatever they choose to do. Yes, Kati, it's a figure, this is a tutorial. Why say no, I guess when they're because it will take her too long to have money, you see. At first, she didn't qualify. She had to do um, a BSc, but at the end of the day, there is one who in the other medical doctor. But then she said, no, 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 seven years. No, I can't. We are so near We but she's a hard to wake. Whatever she sets her mind, whatever she wants to do, she works hard towards achieving that the things that she wants. Now, Tulile, we heard your mother saying you're a go-getter, you're an achiever, as in you can't be stopped. <laughs> what is your response to that? Is that true? <laughs> um. I think it's, it's always really interesting to and it's always I think really humbling to, to hear uh, your parents speak about you um, in that manner. I think I think it's really humbling. 
and she, she, she sounds she sounds like she she's proud <laughs> of of the person I've become and um and that's and that's really humble uh, uh, humbling and I'm just really lost for words to learn it. Yeah, she actually did say she's very proud. (laughs) (laughs) No, she's so cute. (laughs) My mom's lovely. Yeah, (laughs) she is a lovely woman. But you grew up uh, in Etiquini or Etiquini. What are what were your the unique challenges that you faced up? Especially, um, what kind of the challenges, the unique challenges that uh, young people face there? unique challenges that young people face there now is that they faced then. Mm. Oh, are you talking about now? Well, at the time when you were growing up there mm. and then you, you know, you sort of just looked at the circumstances and then you said to yourself, no, this is how I want to forge my life forward. Um, I think, um, if I, if I must be honest with you, I, I think that my parents raised me in a way that sort of occupied my time. Mm. My time was occupied. So I was at school and I played sports and I was doing this or doing that. So my 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 honest view of of how young people were would be those that I was at school with. Yeah. And the ones that were in my class were very driven young people, they were very com- competitive. And the ones that were not in my class were perhaps engaged in in other things. They found other things interesting. So they found partying interesting. Um, <clears throat> they found boys and, and getting into relationships interesting. Um, and perhaps not not necessarily engaging themselves in in planning for their futures. They also saw a lot of people when they're in high school don't don't think about what life must look like after university. And I think um, I occupied myself and, and, and the people in my class who occupied ourselves a lot about uh, on on what on what I wanted every day to look like for me yeah. after university. What did I want every day to look like? And I felt like um, I just felt like other people weren't serious about it, and and there were other things that they were interested in, and I didn't understand why they were interested in those things. Uh, but yeah, so others would fall pregnant, um, and obviously that stalled their academic careers, you know. And, and you know, people are concerned with. I just felt like people were concerned with with other things that I didn't think they should be concerned with. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm, and you're a very busy woman. You've got many things that you need to get to, but you also use a lot of lists. Um, as I had mm-hmm. read in one of the articles, you use lists to get through some of the tasks that you need to um, to do for the day. Mm-hmm. But what pushes you and motivates you uh, without, you know, making you feel overwhelmed? Um, I think... I think for me it's 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 people. I think people inspire me a lot. How the, the mind of a person works, um, the potential that a person has. Um, people inspire me. I get inspired by people. I I, I spend a lot of time interacting with people of of different ages, 
from different backgrounds. Um, and, and for me, that, that, that inspires me and it, it pushes me to want to be better all the time. Um, the, the, the other thing, I think, is that as a, as a, as a scientist, you, you sort of, as a scientist, the value of being a scientist is how science teaches you to think mm. and the questions that you ask um, as a scientist, which lead to more questions and lead to more questions. So that desire to want to answer the next, the next question is also quite a big driver. So if you look at the world right now and you look at the number of challenges that we have, what you want to find out is why we have those challenges. And as, as, as long as there's a why, I want an answer. Whether I'm the person finding the answer or the, pe- the person equipping other people to be able to find those answers. Um, but I, I just want to keep, I just want to keep understanding and finding the answers. And where there are more questions, I want to know what those questions are. Mm. I think that people and just the, the, the desire to, to understand things yeah. and find answers. And since you've spoken about, um, you know, interacting with people, being your biggest motivator, being something that really pushes you forward, um, you also have Nkatuto, where you also interact with young people. Not only do you interact with young people here at the university as a lecturer, but um, at the NPO as well. Can you share some of your success stories through um, this NPO that you started not so long ago? Um, so I think right now our 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 most successful what I would say is our biggest achievement right now is that we have kids in townships who who believe and know that that their ideas are valuable and they're commercializable and they can change the world. And I think for me, from on a philosophical level. That's my biggest. That's our. That's our biggest success to date, and continues to be. I think will continue to be the success as long as we have increasing numbers of these kids that participate in the program. Yeah. Uh, from a technical perspective, it is that the Technology Innovation Agency here, through its Grassroots Innovators Program, which identifies innovators at at a grassroots level who identify problems and create technology-based um, solutions, then they fund them. And typically, those are out-of-school people, out-of-school-going people, but when we um, looked at their they close, closely, we realized that they actually don't um, exclude kids. So we entered some of the solutions that our kids were coming up with in the program, and we entered three. And all three of them are successful in getting funding for product development. So right now, I think our biggest success is that we're beginning to realize the possibility of economic value from the ideas and solutions that these kids are coming up with in the township uh, schools and in the rural communities. Mm. And um, and um, in... Uh, um in 2018, you were named 100 most influ- influential young people in South Africa. What was that experience like? Sure, that 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 was so. So that that was. <coughs> excuse me, sorry. I still don't know. I still don't know how to feel about about that. Still, somewhat. Um, 
an out-of-body experience of sorts, and I'll tell you why. Because most of the time, when you when you get something, um, an honor of this nature, you know that you're going to get it. Mm. You, they tell you that. Oh, okay. You know, you, well, congratulations. You've been named the what? I don't know. With with advance, they don't they don't do that. They just release. There's a media release. That says these are the people that have been voted for. You don't know who voted for you. You don't know. Sometimes you don't even know that it was going on and there was a voting process. Yeah. So for me, that was like, it was incredible because it, it, it didn't, I didn't have to tell anyone what I did. I didn't have to write anything. No one had to call me and say, I want to nominate you for this. Can you give me your CV? It is one of those where someone puts a name out and people vote. Yeah. So it, it, it sort of says that people already know work that I do without me having to tell them. And I thought that for me was um, I, I, I don't actually have the word for it. it, it it's almost, it, it's one of those where you realize that bigger powers exist and there are certain things that are out of your control and will happen whether you intervene or not. Yeah, They, they, they will happen. You know what I mean? Mm. And yeah, so that, that yeah, that was awesome. Wow, that is really incredible. Just um, very briefly, uh, what would your parting words be to your students and other young people in your field or in the science field who may be listening to the show tonight? What would your parting words be? So I'm very passionate about um, the way that scientists and engineers and technologists think. But I am concerned about the lack of an entrepreneurial mindset hmm. within that population of people when we live in a time where economies are growing as a result of the development of technology. So if I had to say anything to young people that are in the STEM field, I would say to them, concern yourself with the art of developing an entrepreneurial mindset so that you can grow your value, grow the value of your community and grow the value of the country and the continent. Think bigger than the perpetuating and think bigger than the algorithm and think bigger than the code, you know, or the program. Yeah. Um, think bigger than that and think about um, the value that you can create using the skill set that the university teaches you. Hmm. Those are really impressive words and very inspiring. I thank you so much for being on the Science Inside and taking your time out to speak to us tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, then. There was Tulile Kanile, who is a lecturer and a social entrepreneur, and uh, she's a lecturer here at the Witwatersrand University. And this was us here on the Science Inside giving a platform to uh, young scientists who are working really hard, who are making... Um, changes and uh, who are innovative and we were giving them just a platform to speak about their science and we were talking just now with uh, Tulile Kanile and her research uh, was working, she's working on a vaccine that mimics cells of the HIV virus which cannot infect the person but can eliminate the creation or duplication of cells which which will ultimately cure or heal the um, uh, or eliminate the HIV virus from the body and in tonight's Unscience we discovered how memories are made and how some old memories are much harder to get rid of um, 
more mostly than recent memories and we conclude the show with we concluded the show with personal moments from Tudile's life where she spoke about her achievements and where she's going next in her career but that was it on tonight's show the team behind the scenes is production by Mulebo Mukoka and tech by Kutwano Serame our podcast can be found on podcastvits.journalism.co.za forward slash science and it can also be found on iTunes the science inside is produced in part by the Viz Radio Academy and uh, the South African Department of Science and Technology. That was it for tonight. Good night. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. The Science Inside Podcast.